Renee Rodriguez, it is such a pleasure to have you on your stories don't define you how you tell them will. Thank you so much for taking your time and joining me today. It's my pleasure, Sarah. Thank you. For our audience, um, I just want to share that we were introduced again by Ben Albert, who is just a super connector and warm and kind. And we connected on such a great level about music. So when he made a few recommendations for podcast guests, I didn't hesitate to reach out. And seeing Rene Rodriguez's presence and um, some of his videos, I definitely knew that we had to have you on the show. So thanks again for joining me. Well, I'm excited, Ben. Ben Ben was a great conversation, and uh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. So I always begin by asking my guests to share something about themselves that most people might not know about them, maybe something from their youth or something that is definitely not on their LinkedIn profile. They don't talk about very much. And I love to give context for our audience to understand a little bit more about you before we dive into your stories. I'd probably say that the most unique thing about me that you wouldn't find is that my mother was a nun. <laughs> and so, <Ooh>. yeah, <laughs> it's a, and I, by far, she was the most influential person in my life. And my favorite part of her story is the fact that she decided to not be a nun anymore. Thank God for me. And, you know, she didn't stop being a nun literally. because of me either. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> literally. But I think growing up with, with a, somebody who viewed the world through her lens of, her sole mission in life was global peace and community. You know, was lived in Cuba before and after the Cuban Revolution. Lived in Germany during right after the Holocaust. Uh, was in Panama during the Panama Canal Crisis. Was in the border of Haiti during the guerrilla war, warfare, and was in Las Vegas during the A bomb testing. And this is all before the age of twenty five. Five different countries, and wow. being around that at an early age, those formative years of of what we believe and our values and it really sets the tone for looking at the world differently and everything for her was how do you create change without leaving dead bodies? And of course she saw the dead bodies after the Holocaust and, you know, in the Cuban revolution and the guerrilla warfare, and, but then transitioned to more of a modern age of how do you leave change without leaving the proverbial dead body, the people that were left in the dust. And so there's a lot of driving questions that came from growing up with a mother like that. Wow. I can only imagine. And how old was she when she left being a nun? Um, that's a good question. She was a nun, an Adrian Dominican for eight years. And I was, pro- was probably right out of college. So, and I was born when she was 33. So wow. I'm guessing probably in her late 20s, early 30s. Wow. So being the child of someone who committed at that level and then left must have had some influence on you in terms of your ability to switch gears and your choices to say, just because I made this decision now doesn't mean I have to stay with it for my whole life. Does does that resonate with you? Yeah. Well, I think change is something that she instilled in me at an early age. And and it's such an, a used term that we build a callus to it. And I think Stanley Kubrick, Kubrick had a great quote, so that our ability to, to eloquently talk about a subject matter can create the consoling illusion that we've mastered it. And so when we talk about things, they become cliche, change, 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 but that's the only constant. And even what I just said is a cliche, that it's only constant. But if I always say that if, if there's something that's a cliche, then probably the answers to life are found in a cliche of some sort because they're so true. And mm-hmm. so, you know, looking at the change process, 
you know, for me, change is what keeps life interesting. It's what creates growth. It's what keeps us alive, but it's also what brings us some of the most pain and some of the biggest fears. Sometimes the things that we, we, we don't want to do, it's the unknown. It, it, it really forces us to look at some of the hardest parts of ourselves and when we can learn to look at it from the outside, and, and I, I always hesitate on giving sort of platitude advice around change because it, it can overshadow the, the real reality of the stress and the fear mm-hmm. and the concern that somebody that's in the middle of it. And I think, you know, you talked about divorce, job transition, the pandemic, you know, being sick, the loss of a loved one, a new, a new job. It, it's, there's so many things that are happening that create stress. And so we go, okay, we know that our body is designed and my background in behavioral neuroscience gave me sort of a scientific view uh, to back the philosophical one. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about, you know, the reality that change goes against the process of homeostasis and our body begins to fight that even, you know, internally body temperature regulation, but also externally in our environment. It, it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't leave to long-term survival when we didn't, you know, when things kept changing predictability was something that led to longer life expectancy. And, you know, if I know, I, I know where the door is and the exit is, if I'm, you know, back way back in the caveman days, but if it was unexpected, then, you know, I didn't know if there was a lion out there or a tiger, a bear, a dangerous animal, if there was a cliff, but if I knew my surroundings, I could better prepare to survive. And that's sort of ingrained in us in our work. And so now we're here in organizations and we got a job transition. We've got to change relationships. We got, I mean, it's at the core of everything. And so now we've transitioned from a work home to a, a, a workplace to a home office scenario from mm-hmm. being in person to being on camera, you know, they changes everything. And when you can learn to look at it and say, okay, I know in the short term, this is going to be difficult because my body's going to resent it. And then after a while, if I can open myself up and understand that a little suffering is okay, I'll get through it. So a lot of the mindset and the way we look at it can really help. This is um, a a perfect compliment to the podcast um, last week, which is um, we really focused on the idea of having that present mind to be able to have that thought that this change, whether it's um, my father is in the hospital with a heart attack or whether it's my kid is about to go to college, being able to be in that moment and give yourself the grace of saying, this is hard. This, this might, it, it feels bad. And I'm so grateful to be in this present moment to be able to, to stop myself from thinking too far out into the future and too far back. I think that's fantastic. And I think that the new research is, is saying that a lot of times we can't stop the negative thought when it comes to change or the negative thought when it becomes a stressful moment but we can prevent the verbalization of it out loud. And there's something that shows that when we verbalize our negative thoughts, like this is hard. And when we say that out loud in the past, we thought that was affirming and it was honoring, but really what it did is it was perpetuating the feeling. And so I am one tired. Is to, I feel tired. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so <laughs> of course this thing, this is hard. Cause what's happening is you're verbalizing a narrative. And the things that we verbalize contribute to a narrative and narratives construct reality. And so when we're looking at the narrative of our life, it's constructed to the thoughts that we externalize. And so I know I have negative thoughts sometimes, but I won't allow myself to say them. And research shows that the moment that you say them, the likelihood skyrockets 
of its negative impact on stress. So even if you have a negative thought, if you don't verbalize it, I'm not saying be Pollyanna. I'm saying be conscious and like you said, be self-aware and present in the language that choices that we make because the language choices that we make on how we describe things create the narrative and the narrative constructs reality. And if we're constructing a negative reality through a negative narrative, then we're experiencing that. And so we have to really, especially nowadays, leaders, and, and if we're going through change, you have to really be careful of what you say. That just popped into my head a very specific example of this when um, I read something on LinkedIn that I was surprised by and a little disappointed because the person who wrote it, I was like, really, I, I can't believe that came out of her mouth because it seemed counter to what I know of this woman. And my first instinct in my head was, whoa, you're wrong. But instead of verbalizing that, I wrote, wow, I'm really curious about this. So tell that. me, a, thank you. So, And I, that's what I wrote. Wow, I'm really curious about this. Tell me how you came to this because in my experience, ABC. And um, we had this wonderful dialogue around it because I didn't verbalize the first thought that was in my head. So tell me about when you've done that, when you've been able to make that shift, maybe early on when you're, you were first studying this and understanding it for the concept. Well, I think you know, if you look at what you did, I just want to, I want to commend you on what you did because that takes an immense amount of emotional intelligence and discipline and lack of ego to do something like that. Thank you. And, and, but, and, but listen to the value of it though, too. I would also say it's the most strategic thing somebody can do as well, because you can always go back to your initial thought. You can always go back to it. But if I'm in an argument, if I'm in the heat of battle, you know, if I'm in a persuasive environment, a leadership environment where I need to be influential and I give away this initial irrational off the cuff response, it might be right. Or it might be wrong. It might send the listener into a, 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 a spiral to not be able to hear me. But if I can disarm the listener by saying, well, that's really interesting. If I can turn that frustration into fascination, which is what you did and say, well, you know, I'm really curious because my experience was totally different. Where'd that come from? Opening that, that dialogue creates collaboration. And now all of a sudden sets you even up to say, let's say that they have to now reverbalize what they said. Sometimes when we reverbalize what we say, we realize, okay, that that's not what I meant to say. No, and then now they're open-minded because you didn't attack. So the, the parts of the brain that go into resistance mode aren't even triggered because of your language choice. Now you're able to deliver your message without resistance. I mean, it is the ultimate expression of the most sophisticated form of influence that I know is that because it wasn't offensive. It was strategic, but it was also collaborative. And that's the thing is that influence sometimes means that we have to influence ourselves to listen because we might be wrong. And if I can approach it that way, you're now leading by example and they're following going, wow, this is a safe person to talk to. And more importantly, a safe person to say that maybe I was wrong because they're not going to throw it in my face. So I think there's just a lot that happened in that simple phraseology that you chose there to choose curiosity over your initial reaction. That's awesome. Thank you. I'll take it. I mean, I guess all these years as a communication coach, there are moments where I walk away from a conversation with one of my sons or my husband going, damn, Sarah, you could have done that so much better. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that how we learn though, right? I mean, it's like there's, I talk about this stuff too. And I, I tell people just because I talk about this does not make me immune to the realities of the human system that I'm oh. going to say things off the cuff. I'm going to probably regret some things that I say from time to time. And mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it comes back to that Kubrick space. quote, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. So say it again. Say the Kubrick quote again. The, our ability to talk about a subject matter can create this consoling illusion or eloquently talk about a subject matter can create the consoling illusion that we've mastered it. So everything we do as coaches <laughs> and, yeah. and then the next question is, are we starting to believe our own hype? Because it's yeah. that consoling illusion that we want to believe that we've mastered it yeah. as an individual, which goes right into this whole idea that we don't like to change, that our bodies are going to fight us. So um, if we could go back to that question, tell me a story mm-hmm. about a time where either you didn't, where you, you went in flames <laughs> and then how you recovered from that, or maybe uh, one of those moments where you did it and you went, oh, that's what that is. I'm so relieved that I'm learning this. You know, I, th- I think that it's the way that our previous narratives of in relationships with people can even misconstrue information. You know, oh, I was, absolutely. I was, uh, I received an email one time I was coming out of a hotel, uh, an elevator. And I received an email from somebody that's been very difficult in my life. And, uh, the moment I read the email, I was like, Oh man, here we go. And this is all starting up again. got to call the attorneys and, Oh, here we go. I showed it over to my wife and she looks at it and she goes, Oh, this is great progress. And I'm like, what are you crazy? I'm like, Oh, she didn't read it. And I forwarded it to my attorney. My attorney responds and says, Yep. This, oh man, Renee, this is great progress. Let me know if you need anything. And I'm like, are both of you just crazy? Are you not reading this? And I read it it, and I read it and and she would still look at me like, yeah, that's great. I'm like five times I had to read it before I actually read what it said. Because you were anticipating what it was going to say. Yes. My brain was so stuck on the previous frame of the conversation, the previous experiences that it would quite literally shift and reposition the words in my understanding to read according to what the narrative that I've been living through and the experiences that I had. And I was wrong. It doesn't matter. Now, in the past, this person was wrong and not a very good person, but it didn't matter. Even if they tried to make a good, maybe a good approach forward, my past experience overrode all of that and just reconstructed it. My friend called that freezing people in time. I love that. Yeah, that's true. And that's what you did because of your previous experience. I did that. um, I had this moment where I realized how I could apply that just for a day-to-day experience where I was walking my dog. I saw another guy like a block away walking his dog and I saw his dog do his thing on a neighbor's yard and uh, I didn't see him pick it up. And what did I think? Like, what an asshole. (laughs) Who does that? Who doesn't yeah. pick up the poo on somebody else's yard? And I stopped myself because I thought, okay, I was going to yell at him, but I was too far away. So yeah. I just let it go. And then I started thinking, wait a minute, what if he was going to come back and get it because he just didn't have a bag with him? Yeah. Or what if it's his yard and he was going to go inside? And I didn't think it was, but uh, but what if what if he did leave it there? And I have this image of this complete jerk And then I go to like a YWCA fundraiser and see him write a check for $5,000. We are so complicated as humans that when we freeze people at time, it leaves us zero opportunity to see the good in somebody or to see the bad in somebody after they've done something good. Those are such good examples. And I think it takes such discipline to be able to do that because, you know, 
it's easy. It's much easier to, to, to judge people based on little information than to see the actual story. And, you know, the work that I do, I hear thousands, if not tens of thousands of stories all the time. And I'm, uh, you know, we teach people how to tell their story. And so I have to hear their stories. And I can't tell you for the last 28 years, how many times I've seen, I saw somebody because light travels faster than sound. So I can see you before I can understand you that I made a judgment. And after I heard the story, I'm crying alongside them, listening to their story, have full empathy. And all of a sudden I'm like, wow, <clears throat> how wrong. And see so many of those stories that now even that person that I'm just like, Ugh, they have a story too. And it's like, <laughs> but it's, it's much easier to not, and it's so much easier to live in denial. But w- what we've learned is that there's such a small percentage. I want to say small in the single digits of percentage people that aren't, that aren't good. Most people are really good. And most people live according to the stories that they've been through. And when you don't know, you just don't know. And I think that, you know, if you ever take the time to listen to people's stories, but here's the thing, it's easy to do that when you're feeling in a good, stressful place. Try doing that when you feel betrayed. Try doing that when you feel wronged. When somebody did that in your yard, they took away your something, or you feel they interpreted something against you. Are we still able to have that level of grace, that unmerited favor in that moment to do that? And that's what I think the true challenge of leadership in is in the ultimate expression of this is saying, okay, the person, if you think like, if you're listening to this, think of somebody without saying their name that, that just riles you up, crawls under your skin. You can't stand them. Maybe even you hate them. I don't like that word, but maybe it's Not something either. that it's really, really difficult. And they just, they're just, they always have bad intentions. Now they have a story and their story probably makes sense. But are you able to see that? Now, does everybody deserve that? No. And just because you have a good story, but you're a jerk to me, it doesn't entitle you to be part of my life either. So I'm not saying that you have to embrace and accept everybody, but it does relieve us of the holding on to the grudge, to holding on to the negative energy that that kind of is associated to it. I love that. My older son, after getting out of a very difficult relationship, he said, well, I learned something from her dad, even though he's a complete jerk and I hate him. And he used the word a hate, which isn't something that we do in our household much. Right. Um, he said, and I hate that this wisdom came from him, <laughs> but I have to hold on to the wisdom. And it was that that quote that we've all heard before that if you hold on to hate, it's like drinking poison and expecting somebody else to die. And it's the same with bitterness and that anger. It's like if you hold on to that, they don't care. They're not yeah. holding on to it. So you're just poisoning yourself. So tell me about a time when you were, when that happened for you, a very specific incident where you were like, oh my gosh, <laughs> hey, I hate this person. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, one, one incident and it wasn't, I don't, I don't use I, I, hate. It's not something that I, that I use. And it's just, cause I think that there's one, I'm jaded. I've been doing this 30 years. I've seen too many stories. I've been wrong too many times. I do. I am frustrated by people, but I think when it one that was very I'll, instead of hate, I'll say a very selfish moment. And you know, I grew up without a father, and at, when I was about five years old, my mother remarried, and he came into our lives, and he had three children of his own. And I remember desperately trying to get his attention, trying to be on his good side. I my perception of his experience with me was that I was in the way, and he loved his three children. 
I was a necessary evil because I was my son, my wife, my mother's son. And so for years and years, I tried, I tried, I tried, I tried, you know, and, and I remember, you know, when, when um, I moved out 17 years old to go to college, my mother immediately left and they divorced. I didn't see him after that. And then probably about 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago, I got a knock on my door and it's my stepbrother, older stepbrother and saying that he had died. And I hadn't seen him in over 15 years. And so I looked at that and I said, okay, I went to the funeral, went to the whole thing. I sat in the back. Nobody even knew who I was, even though he was my stepfather for 15 years, except the kids. Now they embraced me. They were amazing. They were loving and accepting. We didn't have much of a relationship, you know, during those years, but obviously we grew older and mm -hmm. matured. And what was interesting, the big piece was my experience was all he does is love his own kids and he hates me. I learned after he had passed, their experience was I was the lucky one. They lost their father and I gained him. And it was one of those eye-opening moments of, wow, how, how unintentionally selfish I was to look at things from that perspective. And knowing that maybe my experience wasn't there, but they lost their dad. He wasn't there. And that just blew my mind. Wow. Amazing how much damage we do to ourselves and others when we don't just talk about things and use yes. words. You know, that, to that point, one of the things that I tell people when they're, and we, we do, we work with people through helping them tell their story in a business context, but sometimes in our sessions, these life grudges come up and you know, I've been doing this too long to say, you know, like, Hey, I want to help you be a better leader communicator, but if you're holding onto this baggage, it's just going to get in the way. Can we just deal with it? And a lot of times it's, it's around forgiveness. You know, we've got people that will be in our sessions. I'm like, okay, you, do you want to handle this? They're like, yes. I said, okay, have you forgiven them? They're like, they look at me like, no, I said, all right, over lunch, you're going to call and forgive them. And, and they're like, what? And it's amazing the things that people will do. I'm like, well, I go, or you can just hold on to this because here's what I tell you, what I've come to learn. Forgiveness will happen. It'll either happen now, or you're going to wait for someone's deathbed, and you're all going to be sitting around that deathbed, looking at each other with all the 20 and 30 years that were wasted, saying, why didn't we just do this earlier? Or if it, that never happens, you'll just live with regret, wishing you would have. That's part of the human system. I said, so why not at least do it now? That doesn't mean you need them in your life. It doesn't mean that you need to let go of what happened, forget what happened, but holding on to that that uh, anger is not doing anybody any good. And <clears throat> we had one person that was upset with her mother and very upset with her mother, banished her, wouldn't talk to her. And she, he had two younger sisters he hadn't, hadn't even met yet. They were five years old. Mm. And he saw them bored, but that was it. We finally called, he got him saying, you, you, he, I'm like, you got to forgive her. And he's like, there's no way she's going to be upset, blah, 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 blah. Anyways, call after lunch. He's like, she immediately told me she loved me and I'm going to see them in two days. And wow. what was fascinating, I mean, I've got countless stories like that, but what was interesting is that the, all the other stories that came up in the session where one person said, cause the person was like, I don't know if I can forgive them. And they go, you know what? I did that with my mother. I, I, I punished her for 20 years. And then on her deathbed, she looked at me and she didn't even realize I was punishing her. Oh, all she 
knew was how she felt. And so what we think we're punishing them, we're actually punishing ourselves. And it was like, yeah. And so that, mm-hmm. that whole concept of just holding on to things doesn't serve us. And the power of forgiveness in those moments, even if it's unmerited, that's the beauty of the word grace, the unmerited love, unmerited favor of God, or even unmerited favor from one human to another. When we can offer each other some level of grace, it's, you know, a lot of times the apologies we need won't ever come. Mm-hmm. A lot of times the, the, the self-awareness that we need from the other party might not happen because they're probably wishing we had self-awareness of the things <laughs> exactly. that we wronged them. And it's, mm-hmm. it's the human experience is so incredibly fascinating when you start realizing just how we all experience things through our own, you know, if we're looking at a prism, like a diamond of reality, we all look through a different facet of that and we all experience life so differently. And, you know, look at the political discussions, how it's our way is the only way. But what happens if you walk over to the other side and just take a look on what somebody else is looking at? You can always go back to what you always believed in the past. You can always go back to whatever thoughts you had, but what's the harm of saying, okay, tell me why, you, why you're a Democrat. Tell me why you're a Republican. Tell me why, what's the, what's the plight of a woman? Tell me, what is it like to be a woman in the workplace? What is it like to be gay? What is it like to be a black? What is it like to be Hispanic? What's it like to be bald? Who knows what it is? And tell me, and let me live in that shoe for just a little bit. And I can go back always to what I felt before if I truly gave it a chance. Mm-hmm. There are so many things to um, pick apart in that conversation. I mean, the, the first thing that popped into my head is when somebody told me that I was bitter over something. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm really not. And she said, well, you need to forgive and forget. I said, well, I forgive, but forgetting would be stupid because then I open myself up to that happening again. But I absolutely forgive. And when yeah. they change their behavior, I'll know and I'll be yeah. ready for it. Yeah. But I'm forgetting is kind of stupid. It doesn't bode well for long-term survival. <laughs> no. And you get to choose the boundaries on your relationship. And I, I yeah. think that's one thing. One of my friends said that, that she has a really complicated relationship with her mom. And I said, well, I, I had that with my dad for a while. And what I decided was that I want a relationship with him, but I want it under my terms. And so yes. I set certain boundaries. And if he crossed a boundary, I would say, no, that's, that's not okay. We'll, we'll talk later. Cause this is, this is the boundary that I've set. I think that there's so much wisdom in that to look at the reality that I can forgive, that I can forgive people and the wisdom in saying I can forgive, but that doesn't mean that I have to forget. Now, some people use that. I forget, but I didn't forget as a way of perpetuating it. No, I'll, I, of course, I remember how you were, but I've forgiven it, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to be naive to if you do it again, right? Because there's a exactly. human nature that comes from that. And it's like the whole scorpion and the frog story. I'm sure you're familiar with that story. I am, but go ahead and share a synopsis for us. So the Please. simple version, I heard it from Jim, from Jim Rohn, but I think it's an Aesop fable. A scorpion and a frog approach a river and... Frog's about to swim across, and Scorpion says, hey, Frog, uh, you mind giving me a ride across? I, I, I can't swim, and uh, it'd be great if you give me a ride. Frog looks at Scorpion and says, you think I'm stupid? You're a scorpion. You sting frogs. I'm going to get out there, and halfway you're going to sting me. I'm going to die. Scorpion says, you're not using your frog brain. Yeah, I sting you. you you're going to die out there, but I can't swim, so if I sting you, I'd die as well. Why would I do that? Frog says, all right, makes sense. Hop on. So he goes out takes him out. About halfway across the river, sure enough, scorpion stings the frog. Now they're coming up for their last breath, and the frog looks over at the scorpion and says, 
what were you thinking? You stung me. I'm going to die, but you can't swim. You're going to die too. Why in the world would you sting me? The scorpion looks at the frog and says, because I'm a scorpion and I sting frogs. That's my nature. And it's human. Yeah. Na- it's their nature. And when people, and here, the lesson though, for me, the lesson of this was when people have revealed themselves, listen, mm-hmm. we are the naive ones when we expect other than what they have revealed their nature to be. And now the danger in that is that a lot of people will use that. They're a scorpion as a negative thing. No, no, no. Scorp- we're all scorpions in some way, shape, or form. I, I am a scorpion. You are a scorpion. We all, it's the scorpion is the representation of the nature that we have revealed of who we are in our consistent behaviors. Mm-hmm. And if I expect something different, I'm the naive one. I'm going to create frustration for myself. I'm going to be surprised over something that it shouldn't be surprised. Shouldn't about. surprise. Jim, yeah. Yeah. It shouldn't surprise you. Jim Rohn used to say, well, well the liar shouldn't lie. What are you talking about? That's their job. <laughs> They're liars. You know, <laughs> the person shouldn't cut me off on the road. What are you talking about? That's their job. They're called cutter offers on the road. And you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, a calmness that comes when you say, okay, that's just who they are. And I just tell myself, you know, Scorpion should have known better. And I'm yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. So as we kind of come full circle back into what you do and and why you do it, can you tell us about a recent client that um, basically I'm asking you to tell us what you do without telling us what you do by sharing a story about an experience with a recent client? Let's see. What's a and good you've done question. that a couple of times. I mean, like the, you have to call your mother and ask for forgiveness or, or to forgive her or whatever that was. So, you know, we, 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 what I believe is that influence is the most important skill set of the human experience. And the reason is, is I think we've had too narrow of a definition of influence. And, you know, if you think of the opposite of influence, I share, a st- I, I walk in a room, no one notices. I tell a joke, no one laughs. I sell a product, no one buys. I cast a vision, no one follows. The feeling that usually follows is the feeling of insignificance. And what am I about? Why am I here? Because I feel like I have no purpose because I have no impact. And so when we think about the purpose of that, say, okay, what's the opposite of that? What does it feel like to have influence? You walk in a room, people notice. Tell the joke, people laugh. You sell a product, people buy. You cast a vision, people follow and are inspired. Now I feel significant because... I have impact. And when I have impact, now I have clear purpose. And so to me, influence is about the understanding, not just about persuasion and selling and leadership. It's about the significance I have in this world or the mark that I want to leave on the world. And so for me, it's helping people understand where and how the science of influence and how it works, but more importantly, how they can do it according to their own style, their own way. What we tell people all the time is that Polish does not equal influence. I know people that are overly polished and we don't want to listen to these perfectly perfect stories. And it's, it's not human because it's not human because it's portraying perfection. And one of the least common traits of human, of being human is perfection to err is to be human. And so the error is where we connect the, the faults, the, the kinks in the armor. And so showing people that, you know, some people, the person who is perfect, we don't want to listen to with the person that might have flaws and might be not polished, but they're speaking from the heart in an authentic way, we might shift our entire lives to follow them. And so mm-hmm. helping people do that and, and watching someone share that story is is critical. And there's a sequence and an order to being able to do that. I suppose you want a story, like how, how does that function, right? So how does that look? 
Um, you know me so well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you the story. I'll tell you the story of, of, of Janice. And so Janice was a, a senior executive, very large organization, and they wanted me to help her prepare for an interview. And now she's an MBA, PhD, just a powerful woman. I mean, I'm like, I wanted to take her class. She was just really, really powerful and engaging. And not only was she powerful, but she was also somebody who was very present. So she made you feel special. I mean, this was a very rare talent. And her position that she was looking to interview was a president of a billion-dollar business division. And so we got her in, and, and you know, her interview was going to be about nine hours. So we prepared her with a bunch of questions. And I put three people in front of her. I sat off to the side and I asked her a question. The first one was, tell us something you're proud of. And she uh, hitched her coat and answered like every executive was trained to answer, was uh, short, concise, and to the point. And she said, I got straight A's my last year in school. And now, great answer. I can't relate to that at all. (laughs) (laughs) I can't either. But what was missing was there was no frame of reference. There was no frame. There's no story. There's no narrative. And so what happens is if you don't provide a frame of reference, the listener is forced to create one for themselves. And so the listener is going, straight as my last year school, what does that mean? So since she provided no frame, I just started framing her. I said, oh, so straight as your last year in school, so you're a procrastinator. Does that mean you're going you're procra- you're to procrastinate for us as well? And she looks at me like I'm crazy. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. Did mommy and daddy pay for school so you didn't have to work that hard? And then she's got a shocked look in her face. And I said, Janice, I didn't mean any of those words. I said, but I don't know what straight as your last year in school means. She didn't provide a frame. I do know it was important to you, wasn't it, though? She said, she just nodded her head. I said, why? Took her a minute and a half to compose herself. She looks at me and she says, when you've been told you're stupid your entire life by adults, you tend to believe them. And something happened my last year in school where I looked myself in the mirror and I said, either I'm going to believe them forever or I'm going to do something about it. And I did something about it. And so what we look at is helping people understand the frame and the story behind the message. And sharing that story first before we share the message, because that's how the brain processes information. We process reality through shared frames of reference and narrative. And if I don't provide a narrative or frame of reference, my listeners forced to, but I don't know from the source by which they're drawing the narrative in the frame. So if I can provide it, I've done the work of the brain. They understand and we have better meaning and we're on the same page. Mm. Powerful. I got a chill at my spine when you've been told you were stupid all your life. Um, I had a similar experience with a client that told me that when she was 10 years old, her mother told her she wasn't very bright. She said, you, you'll marry well because you're very sweet, but you're not very bright. And I remember when she was in her 40s, I had this conversation with her. I said, how long are you going to let her define what bright is? How long are you, when do you take responsibility for that internal dialogue, for that thought, what evidence do you need to review over and over and over again to see that she was wrong? And then we were able to actually go back to her original story. And I said, so tell me about this. Where were you when she said this to you? She said, what do you mean? I said, were you sitting at the dining room table? Were you at a parent teacher conference? Were you at a park? Where were you? And she said, we were probably in the kitchen at the kitchen table at the nook. And I said, okay. And was it, describe it to me. And she kind of described her kitchen. I said, where was your mom? And she was probably making dinner. What was she wearing? And we came to this story where she realized that her mother, this would have been in the 50s, late 50s. Her mother was not in a good place at that point. 
she was probably protecting her daughter from having expectations or goals that were beyond what she could accomplish, what the mother could accomplish. And so she was trying to, you know, limit her expectations a little because she was probably just going to end up, you know, being a mom and not getting to do all the things that she wanted to do, not go to college or any of those things. And so instead of saying, be careful of your expectations, she's like, oh, you're not very bright. So just don't, don't work that hard because, you know, and by the time we got through with understanding the story behind that moment and where her mother was at that point, very discouraged in her own life and feeling highly underestimated and undervalued, there was like this light bulb that went on in this woman's head. I could see her shoulders start to clear of that weight. And that's what Janice had to do. She had to say, this is what people told me. And this is the evidence that I had to create to prove they were wrong. And I love that you uncovered that context because you're right. I mean, all I hear is, oh, I had a lot of wealth. So all I had to do was school. That's all I had to do. And so, of course, I did really well. (laughs) Yes. Absolutely. Um, Renee, I love that story because it shows how you were able to uncover that context for her so that she would understand that sharing what was meaningful to her was beyond a snippet of conversation. Absolutely. And no one can know what's meaningful to her until she shares that context. So well articulated. Could not have said that better myself. Thank you so much. And um, for our listeners, I will have all of um, Renee's conversation or sorry, contact information in the show notes. Um, on this podcast episode at elkinsconsulting.com. Renee, what else would you want our listeners to know about you, your books? What, how can they get in touch with you? Where do you want people to go? Well, the, the, I mean, I I did write a book. It's uh, called Amplify Your Influence. It's uh, available at Amazon, bookstores, everything. Um, You can go to my website, meetrenee, M-E-E-T, Renee, R-E-N-E.com. And, but I do a, a video, actually two videos a day right now on my Instagram. They're all learning videos in 30 seconds to 48 seconds, sometimes a minute, but very tangible takeaways on a lot of these ideas that we talked about here. So follow me at learn with Renee, L-E-A-R-N with Renee, R-E-N-E. Perfect. Renee, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank I you, Sarah. It was you. a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.